Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 18. Second Samuel chapter 18, grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word of the Lord. Then David numbered the people who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent the people out one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I myself will surely go out with you also. But the people said, You should not go out, for we, and if we indeed flee, they will not care about us. Even if half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore now it is better that you be ready to help us from the city. Then the king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and thousands. The king charged Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king charged all the commanders concerning Absalom. Then the people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. The people of Israel were defeated there before the servants of David, and the slaughter that day was great, 20,000 men. For the battle there was spread over the whole countryside, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Now Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, for Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, so he was hanging between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him kept going. When a certain man saw it, he told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Then Joab said to the man who told him, Now behold, you saw him. Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? And I would have given you ten pieces of silver and a belt. The man said to Joab, Even if I should receive a thousand pieces of silver in my hand, I would not put out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king charged you in Abishai and Ittai, saying, Protect for me the young man Absalom. Otherwise, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Then Joab said, I will not waste time here with you. So he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men who carried Joab's armor gathered around and struck Absalom and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained the people. They took Absalom and cast him into a deep pit in the forest and erected over him a very great heap of stones, and all Israel fled, each to his tent. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself a pillar which is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to preserve my name. So he named the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Please let me run and bring the king news that the Lord has freed him from the hand of his enemies. But Joab said to him, You are not the man to carry news this day, but you shall carry news another day. 
However, you shall carry no news today because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed to Joab and ran. Now Ahimus, the son of Zadok, said once more to Joab, but whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, why would you run, my son, since you will have no reward for going? But whatever happens, he said, I will run. So he said to him, run. Then Ahimus ran by way of the plain and passed up the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall and raised his eyes and looked, and behold, a man running by himself. The watchman called and told the king, and the king said, If he is by himself, there is good news in his mouth. And he came nearer and nearer. Then the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, Behold, another man running by himself. And the king said, This one also is bringing good news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahimus, the son of Zadok. And the king said, This is a good man and comes with good news. Ahimus called and said to the king, All is well. And he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground, and he said, Blessed is the Lord your God who has delivered up the man who lifted up the men who lifted up their hands against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And Ahimus answered, When Joab sent the king's servants and your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I, I did not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Behold, the Cushite arrived. And the Cushite said, Let my lord the king receive good news, for the Lord has freed you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, Let the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be as that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I don't normally do this, but I want to I play some music for you. This is a setting of this text from the 16th century by a composer named Josquin. And um, why would I play some music for you from around the time of Luther? I don't know. It's beautiful. And it helps music. Music gilds the lily, right? Music um, amplifies words. I think that's why God has given us music and worship is because it, amp- it helps us understand and feel words and course, God cares about words more than he cares about music, right? Because he spoke to us with words. And so I want to play you a setting of that last verse. It's called Absalom Feely Me, and it's just this text and then a little bit more text um, that doesn't follow the biblical text. But um, there are other settings of this. It's pretty, it's a well-set text in the history of music. Uh, Heinrich Schutz did a setting of this text, which more closely follows the, uh, this here and uh, countless others that we could go to. But hopefully you'll be able to hear this. Um, but I want, I want to play it. 
I'll try to mic it.
I think it helps us enter into the emotion of this text. But we'll get there in a minute after we've, we've worked through this. So back to the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 18. Remember the context here that David is competing against Absalom for the affections of the people. David has been, um, has been afflicted by his son Absalom. Absalom uh, has risen up an army, and indeed in this passage it's his armies that are called the armies of Israel. And it's the servants of David versus the armies of Israel. You have to also remember Hushai and Ahithophel, right? Ahithophel killed himself at the end of the last chapter because the king didn't take his counsel. And then Hushai um, gives the king counsel, and, um, and that is indeed what ends up uh, falling out. So David commands Israel. This is about the beginning. This is civil war, right? This is Israel against Israel. This is one faction of Israel against another faction. This is Absalom against David. And so David wisely has the time to split his armies into three armies, right? One under the command of Joab, another under Abishai, and another under Ittai the Gittite, believe it or not. And um, this time, remember, David says something interesting. He says that he'll go into battle, which is a pointed confession. Um, in, you know, we think back to his not going into battle and the trouble that that led him into back in chapter 12. This time he says he will go into battle, but the people object, and so he stays by the gates. And As the armies are going out of the gates, he's standing by the gates. And he only has one directive for the men who are going out, and that's deal gently with Absalom. Deal gently with Absalom. Why? Why deal gently with Absalom? Why... um, this was David's son. He, he undoubtedly had a deep love for his son. But was this David's strength or his weakness being demonstrated here? We'll come back to that. Um, David goes out, or the armies of, of King David go out and slaughter Israel. 20,000 dead. Um, it, it says that the, uh, at one point the forest devoured more people than uh, that day than the sword devoured. And I think that just speaks to the importance of topography in battle, right? It's not like the trees started, this isn't Lord of the Rings, right? The trees didn't start moving and walking, and I think it has to do with terrain and a difficult terrain that led to many people in, Ephraim, or in those forests of Ephraim uh, dying simply because of the terrain. Um, the nature of the battlefield contributed to their defeat. Absalom then, we find out, is riding on a mule, and his head is caught in a tree. I mean, this is an astonishing providence of God, isn't it? This is not what Absalom expected to happen this, when he woke up that morning and had his cup of coffee. He did not think that uh, his end would come in this manner. Um, what's significant about that? Well, you remember before that Absalom used to shear his hair once a year or every couple of years. It was either a year or every couple of years, and it just weighed this massive amount, and he would sell it. And so it was his glory, right? His hair was his glory, and now his glory is what gets him caught in a tree. 
Um, Joab is informed of this, and Joab says to the, the man who came to him, says, why, you know, why did you not deal with him? Why did you not strike him? And that righteous man you know, says, look, you could have given me a thousand pieces of silver. I wouldn't have put my hand against the king's son. Why? Not because it was the king's son, but, but because he heard the king say, deal gently with my servant. That was spoken before the whole uh, army. And so, um, so, so Joab determines that, Joab is annoyed. I will not waste time here with you. Right? He's annoyed by the whole thing. And, and we know that Joab is a man who can uh, certainly take matters into his own hand. He always seems like he's one step ahead of the king and can make better decisions than the king can make. And this is another point in that case, right? And um, uh, impatient Joab goes and puts three spears through Absalom's heart. He doesn't die by that. It's the men afterwards, the ten men, servants of Joab, who come and then kill him uh, after that point. No doubt that's a way for for Joab to say, there were a lot of people around there. I'm not sure exactly what happened when he goes and reports to the king. Right. The other thing that we should point out is in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, it says that cursed is the man who hangs from a tree. Right. And here is, here is that um, in Absalom. Uh, he's being marked out by this manner of him being caught in the trees, being marked out as a cursed man. This is a cursed man. So um, Absalom is then buried in the forest there. Israel is defeated. Um, Absalom had already built in the Valley of the Kings a monument to himself. And um, the King's Valley was on the eastern side of Jerusalem in the Kidron Valley. And so um, he's got his monument there. But he's just a pile of stones now in the forest. He's in a pit. His body's in the pit, stones are erected over him, and that's his end. Word is brought to the king regarding Absalom, not Ahimus, who had been given the task by David yet, but Joab sends a Cushite, right? Um, and, and Ahimus yet um, begs Joab, let me, let me go speak to the king. And he knew the short route, right? He knew the, knew the shortcut. And he got to the king before the Cushite got to the king. And um, <clears throat> David's there. David's waiting to hear. David is at the gates. He's still at the gates. Red returned to the gates to hear. He's expecting good news, right? It's three times in this passage where he's, he's saying, oh, if it's one man, it's good news, right? Oh, there's another man running. It, it must be good news. It must be good news. He's got... He's trying to read, read the tea leaves, so to speak, and by the way the men are coming to him, I guess we could say, look, if it, was a, if it was a ton of men coming at once, that probably would have been bad news because it would have been his armies fleeing from battle. But one man can bring good news, whereas uh, many rushing away from the battle would be, would be bad. But Ahimus reports, he, he begins, he just says, all is well. And leaves it at that. <clears throat> the men who rose up have been dealt with. David's first question and only question for both of these uh, servants is, is it well with the young man Absalom? 
Those, that's the question that's on his mind at this point. Israel is in the midst of civil war, right? And Absalom had been the commander of the Confederate forces, right? The other side, right? He had been the commanders of those um, rebelling against the king not making a one-to-one with the Confederate armies and just saying that there are two sides in every battle. Um, Let's not get into that. But, so, you know, right in the midst of civil war, and this is the commander of the other, other armies, and David's first question is, is it well with Absalom? Now, Hymas says it was, there was a lot going on. I'm not sure what happened. I saw a commotion and doesn't report. And then he stands aside and the Cushite gives his report and he begins similar to Hymas. Same question though from David. Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite very boldly says, let the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up against you for evil be as that young man. Dead. Right? Judged. Cursed. Hanging from a tree. Um, dispensed with in a very public manner. Uh, No longer a force for evil in the kingdom. And at the end of it, all we get is that very um, intense, verse 33, the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate to get alone. And he wept. And thus he said as he walked, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Very, I mean, just the the repeating of that, O my son, O my son, five times, O my son, my son. It's something that we need to think about. And that's really where I want to focus the rest of our meditations on this passage. This is clearly a father's Love for his son being demonstrated here, right? It, it is an intense, um, intense devotion and love for his own son. And yet we can't, we can't forget, right, the crimes of the son. We can't forget the character of Absalom, right? Was Absalom a beloved son to his father? Do you think Absalom... Would have, if David had died, had Absalom, would Absalom be saying, Oh, my father, my father, oh, my father? No, he would not have. He had already killed his brother, right? After he, he schemed to kill Amnon, his brother, because of the... He had, he had slept with his father's concubines, right? In, before all Israel, it says. He had made a spectacle of this. That was a, 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 an act of state, right? That was for him to have, um, that was for him to have called, um, called himself king, basically, and, and um, sleeping with the, the king's concubines. And then he had led the entire rebellion of Israel against David. Right? He had, he had uh, for many years, sat at the gates and 
brought the hearts of the people toward himself by judging their judgments so that they wouldn't take them to David and others. And yet here David is still, still deeply depressed at the, the death of his son. Now, I've got a bunch of loosely connected thoughts on this, and I may be bouncing back and forth between points, but we, we can't forget that David was David's weakness throughout his life um, beyond lust uh, seems to have been uh, a, an, an unwillingness to discipline his own children. Right Now he's, re- he's reaping in a terrible way the fruit of that, although this is also the, the prophecy of God for him and his family and that the sword would not depart from his family. But the, think of the cost of not properly loving his son to this point. Because discipline, we know, is love. God disciplines those whom he loves right, and scourges all of his sons. Well, David had left that off, and so David hadn't, hadn't properly loved his son. He had, he had emotionally loved his son, but he had not disciplined his son, which would have been true love, which would have been the kind of love that Absalom needed, right? Clearly the kind of love. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Right? That's what the scriptures say. That love, loving of his son was to be through the means of discipline. And it's actually hatred to not discipline your children. It's hatred. It's not love, as our culture would put it, who tells you not to... Uh, you know, they, it's gone way beyond just corporal punishment to, you know, don't, don't bully your children, don't say anything negative, always be positive, you know, don't say anything critical, right? Well, that's, that's a fulfillment of this proverb, that is to hate your children. Uh, another thought, Absalom is the rebellious son. Right? Absalom is the son who does not want to please his father or please God. Right? And that's, that's, how he, his, that's the trajectory of his life. He does not want to please his father or his heavenly father. Proverbs 19 says, Cease listening, my son, to discipline, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Stop being willing to be disciplined, and you will stray from the path. You will stray from God, the words of knowledge. And, the, and so Absalom embodies the rebellious son. And the end of the rebellious son. Now part of David's lament may have been made... There's a lot, I think, wrapped up in this lament. Part of David's lament may have been made more grievous as he contemplated his own failure. Right? When he says, oh, my son, my son, it may be that he's reflecting on what have I done to my son? Why did I avoid correcting him? Why? Why did I neglect him? And, and look what it's led to. It's led to his death. And so, you know, he, he may be thinking through his own failure here. And this is much more than just an emotional take on the loss of his son, but, but it's... It's regret, right? It's his regret at his failures. 
Um, and if you think about it, what if David had been indifferent at Absalom's death? Well, that would have added a whole different level of perplexity to this passage. If, if, if um, Hymas and, and the Cushite came back and said he's dead, and, and David said, well done. Well, in some sense, theologically, that would make sense. We'd be like, well, yeah, God's enemies are going to be crushed, and, and that's great, and we want all God's enemies to be crushed, but this was also his son, and we'd be like, seems a little callous, doesn't it? Um, one commentary said, to understand the passionate utterance of anguish, we must bear in mind not only the excessive tenderness or rather weakness of David's paternal affection toward his son, but also his anger that Joab and his generals should have paid so little regard to his command to deal gently with Absalom. With the king's excitable temperament, this entirely prevented him from taking a just and correct view of the crime of his rebel son, which merited death, and of the penal justice of God, which had been manifested in his destruction. Right? So that, that's kind of like David, David's weakness is being demonstrated in that he's weeping for his son because he should have just had in mind this pure concept of God's justice. The rebel is, is down. Praise be to God. But what father, even with the most rebellious son, could, could do that? And then, you know, one of the things that we love about David is David always treated his enemies well. Right? Saul. Opportunity to kill the Lord's anointed, he did not take it, but let, him, let it pass by. Shimei. Right? Shimei had been cursing him and calling him out, and, and he says, look, if what he's saying is from the Lord, let him speak. You know, and so there's that... that um, David is always treating his enemies well, and so here this, there's something wrapped up in this grief that, that is this tenderness that, that David showed, this love toward even his enemies that he showed. On the other hand, going down that route of, of thinking through how David as the king, David as the head of Israel should have been thinking about this, um, his deal gently with my son is kind of like him say, saying, to, you saying to a doctor, well, deal gently with my cancer. It's not anything you would ever say, right? Deal gently with me, maybe, but not with my cancer. Eradicate my cancer. Get rid of it so that it does not kill me, right? So David's deal gently with my, my son Absalom, or with, he says, with the young man, Absalom, is like saying, deal gently with my cancer. There is something um, off place about it. So you see I'm jumping back and forth between positive and negative views of, of this. And we have to have in mind that the enemies of God will be destroyed. And part of what, part of being a Christian, part of wrapping your head around God's ways is that we have to get to the point where we actually delight, even now, in the destruction of God's enemies. 
If we can't get there, then we're, gonna ha- we're at the end of our days are going to be bitter toward God. Right? If, we can't say to, if we can't sing Psalm 2 right, and mean it and think that God will destroy all those who are against him, that is a glorious thing. That is a good thing. That is something that we have to wrap our heads around. And so um, we, we have to come to be able to delight in God's justice. The enemies of God will be destroyed. And we should sing Psalm 2. We should sing Psalm 149 with all of our hearts and sit back and just delight in the fact that God laughs at his enemies and will hold them in derision. Right? So we need to be able to do that, and we need to get to that point. If we don't, if we don't get there, if we think that, that um, you know, we'll, we'll, have, uh, we'll get to the point where we are so disgusted by God's justice that we will turn away from him. And... Just concoct a God who's much nicer, right? Concoct a God who is who saves everyone, no matter what. We'll go universalistic, or we'll just go atheistic or materialistic, because we won't delight in all the attributes of God. We'll only delight in the ones that are um, are like our modern culture. David's. Um, Again, David's guilt inflames his grief. Uh, you know, remember that God has told him that the sword will not depart from his house. And that is, um, that is being worked out here in a major way. And so the end result, the end result of, all of, this, of all of this and all of this activity is that this kingdom is now safe, right? The rebel has been put down and yet David is sad. David is sort of undone. Now, in the next chapter, Joab is going to have words for David regarding this whole situation and how Joab... And Joab is a perplexing guy. At, at times, you want to hate him. At times, you love him, right? At times, you wonder if he's trying to take the kingdom away from David. At other times, he's, he's rebuking a brother in a way that needs to be done and seems to be doing good work for the Lord. At other times, he's the henchman for David, and other times, he's, it's just it's an incredibly complicated relationship that Joab and David have. But, um, but there is so much wrapped up in these verses, and I, I guess the last thing that, that I'll say about these verses is we, we learn much about the heart of David, um, and that's not insignificant because David is a man after God's own heart. And so when we see his emotions here, when we see his heart for his son, we do have to stop and pause and not just judge him for, for, being, uh, for not being focused on the, the principle. Justice. Uh, he's grieving for a lost son. He's grieving for a rebellious son. He wouldn't deny any of those things, right? He went to war against his own son. He sent out troops. Twenty. He sent out troops and killed twenty thousand people that were surrounding his son. And so he was going after his son. 
But on the other hand, uh, you do see his, his regrets and his weakness and his inability to uh, fully, fully enjoy the justice of God. That's what I have in this. Um, any, any thoughts that anybody has on this passage that I'm not thinking of on this lament of David's? Chuck. Yeah, it seems so, right? It seems so that they, they'll do so well, they'll have the opportunity just to bring him back, um, having not been harmed. So yeah, I do think he has that confidence. Um, I do think he, he knows the Lord is on his side as he goes into this. And yet, um, and yet the complications of a father going to battle against his son Any other thoughts? That scheming with the woman at Tekoa was to deal with that. That's right. That's right. And well, I mean, in the next chapter, we're, we're going to see Joab come in and, and say, Look, you're sad. And you are depressing all of Israel by your sadness. You know, get up and lead. It's pretty much what Joab says to him. And um, seems to be a timely rebuke. Right? Seems to be a good word from Joab at that point. But yeah, the, the heart of David definitely went out toward Absalom. But if you separate just the fact that he's related... This man had been a scourge on his entire on his entire ability to grow the kingdom of God. This man had been a curse. This man had been a curse in ways that no other uh, no other sons to fathers in Scripture had been. And so, um, so anyway, just if we're in a you know if we're in like one one thousandth of a similar situation as this. We have a rebellious child that meets their end. There's going to be much grief that's poured out, and it's not that we're just going to immediately, you know, settle into the justice of God. We're not. We're going to cry our eyes out, and we're going to, we're going to ask him why. We're going to reflect on our, our life and the, the, the sins our sins of neglect that led our child to this. And, and that's, going to be, that's going to be the intensity of that moment. And so I think that um, Scripture captures that intensity here with that repetition at the end. Any other thoughts before I close this in prayer? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you... You are a, a father to us, and we are rebellious sons. And yet, Father, you have had mercy upon us. You, you substituted your own son in our place.
Father, and he knew the agony that was deserved for us. He knew it himself. And he became sin. He became rebellion. He became cursed on a tree. Father, so that we might be redeemed. And so we rejoice, Father, at your love and your justice toward Jesus and for the salvation that it brought to us. Father, we pray that that as we reflect on this passage that we would be faithful, that we would we would discipline our children so that they may know you and fear you and not walk the rebel's path, that they would live a life that's honoring to you, that they would make their mothers happy and their fathers rejoice. So, Father, give us this uh, blessing. Give us this uh, love for our children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.